Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you pass somebody, you should pass them as if it was a member of your own family. But imagine if you found yourself in a situation with a fatality as a driver. Oh, my God. You don't walk away from that unscathed either. That affects you and your family and your entire life as well. That is Simon Gillett, and this is episode 172 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to episode 172 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Today, my guest is Simon Gillett, one of the patrons of the Amy Gillett Foundation. More about him in a moment. Thank you for coming to the show. If you're new, welcome to the show. I'm Osher. This is my show. Sometimes I'm on television counting roses. Sometimes I'm in your ears on a podcast. More regularly, in your ears, in a podcast. Uh, so, uh, yeah, welcome. Glad you came here. This is where we have conversations, hopefully authentic conversations. It's good. I like to think so. Done 171 of them. Hope this one's just as good. A big thanks to everyone that supports the show on Patreon. If you like this show, if it does give you some value, if you feel that you are able financially to support the show, to help the show come to where every single week, you can by by pledging as little as five bucks a month. You can make sure this show comes to air every week, and uh, by doing so, you're helping pay two fine people that work very hard to make this show happen, my audio producer, Andy, and my production coordinator, Haley. Uh, you, uh, there are various levels of reward. If you start at five bucks, that's where you get access to the exclusive episodes, and up from there, there's uh, one-on-one Skype calls with me of varying lengths and various things. So uh, patreon.com slash osher. If you are a supporter, do check your inbox because there is a new episode in there that I sent out the other week. So about the, about the cost of a fancy cup of coffee or a fancy smoothie to buy from a juice bar, 
If you've got the money in your budget, if you can spare five bucks, if this show does help you, please consider helping this show back because podcasts are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. So it would go a long, 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 long way. So thank you very, very much. To check in with you, I've been absolutely hammering, hammering work. This is the busiest time of year for me because we are uh, beginning to shoot The Bachelor 2017, season five, which is extraordinarily lovely. Uh, also doing radio in the mornings and um, another podcast, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But, uh, yeah, absolutely hammering it. I'm sleeping in shifts wherever I can. Um, I can feel illness nipping at my heels. I'm trying to stave it off. I'm trying to sleep, trying to get zinc into my body. Hopefully it's sleep and zinc versus caffeine and famcyclovir. Famcyclovir is the drug you take when you feel a cold sore coming on. It helps stop the cold sore. It helps make it less shitty, but um, it feels like someone's been punching you in the liver. So it's not great. A big thanks to everybody that came out to Giant Dwarf the other night to see the Giant Dwarf third birthday show. Giant Dwarf is a theatre run by the guys that do The Chaser. Uh, I think their show on air at the moment is called The Checkout, but you remember The Chaser's War on everything and The Chaser's War on this and The Chaser does that. But they have a live theatre where they encourage young performers to get up and upcoming performers to get up. And um, One of the shows that runs there is a show called Story Club. It's a storytelling show and I was very very grateful and quite honoured, in fact, that I was chosen to be the showcase of Story Club's third, you know, birthday. Uh, that was extraordinarily wonderful. And I managed to, uh, I was asked back to tell a story I've told before, which is about the my brain. And um, it's about the day that I lost my mind, the day I, I actually went crazy. You'll find a version of that story on the Story Club podcast. You look back. I've done a few, though, but it's, it's the one about me going nuts. Um which is interesting because I reminded myself during that story I talk about getting back on meds and I reminded myself about my meds last night because I have been thinking and in the last few weeks you've been hearing me talk about it, about asking my shrink to maybe consider taking me off meds for a while to see how I go, see what I'll do. But then there's that story that I wrote about a year ago when I was only just newly on the meds that I'm on now and it was almost like a time capsule to myself to remind me that, yeah, you're feeling good at the moment, but don't forget that when you wrote this story, you were freshly remembering the horror of life off meds and how bad things got, and that's what's waiting for you. I do find it helpful to sometimes do that, to write a letter to myself when I'm feeling rational that I can read when I'm feeling irrational. That way I can read it. I can see it's me. It's clearly my handwriting. It's clearly a me that feels a lot better than I do when I'm reading it, and I'm able to reach out from the past or hopefully the future and reassure me that's not feeling so good that it's going to be okay. And you just remind myself of things to do. It's good. It's a good trick. Uh, I was stoked that two of my friends were able to come from last last night. Two, two of my friends who have come all the way from Los Angeles. Rich Roll was in town. Rich Roll and his beautiful wife, Julie Pyatt, are in town. Uh, they're in uh, Sydney at the moment. They have gigs this weekend in Sydney and Melbourne. I think 16th in Sydney, 17th in Melbourne, 16th is at Paddington Town Hall. 17th is somewhere in Melbourne. I don't know where it is, but uh, all the details are on richroll.com. That's where you can find out all those details. But it's so, so great to have them here because uh, Rich is the kind of guy that I'd call him up the night before and say, hey, man, I'm going to turn 40. I want to ride 40 miles through the mountains. Would you like to come? He goes, absolutely, meet me at 7 in the morning. And boom, we would do it. And he is an extraordinarily wonderful human being. has done a lot for me. And it was so wonderful to have him and his wife um, in my house the other night and, you know, be here and share a meal with my family, um, which is so long so far from uh, where it was when I first met him. Um, him and Julie have been so 
such a positive force in my life and it was really it's really nice just to be able to share my country with him and watching him enjoy the city of Sydney a city I love so much uh, as he runs around it it's pretty pretty great thanks very much for all the podsy pics this week p-o-d-s-i-e just hashtag podsy what is a podsy it's a picture you take with your phone that you're listening to this on right now that shows everyone what you're listening to as you're listening to it uh, what she's looking at as you're listening to it sorry so take the phone out of your pocket open the camera app take a photo of whatever it is you're looking at while you're listening to this it could be laundry it could be kids it could be I don't know, the dishes, it could be a, a mountain climb, it could be the ocean, whatever it is that you're looking at right now. Um, you can shoot it to me on an email, email at gmail.com or you can uh, tag me on Instagram. That usually works the best. Or, you know, Snapchat if uh, if you feel like it. Had some beautiful emails come in this week. Uh, I'll read this one. Uh, I, won't, I won't say the person's name, but... Um, yeah, you can email me, send Osha email at gmail.com. I just wanted to share this one with you. Hey, Osha, so much that I would like to say, but going to try and keep it short for now. Thank you so much for your podcast. I've been listening and catching up on the back catalogue for a couple of months now, and I love, love, love it. Not only are your guests interesting and inspiring, but I love that you are so open about your own struggles with mental illness. I too struggle with social anxiety and depression. It helps me immensely to hear mental health being discussed openly and publicly. It helps me to feel less alone and encourages me to be more open about my own mental health with my friends and family, which can only be good in the long run. Absolutely. Please keep checking in with us. It's great to hear about your journey. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Love this. It's like a warm hug. Well, I'm grateful that you wrote in to share that uh, with me today. That's very, very sweet. Another one came through from Brisbane. Um... Hey, I sure just wanted to send a note to say how you've impacted my life. I'm a 50-year-old mum of two who has always had weight issues. I got to the stage the last couple of years. I decided I just had to be happy with what my weight was because whatever I did, whatever I tried, it didn't change. I did walk most mornings for about an hour. I listen and still do to a variety of podcasts. It happened to be one of your podcasts, and I couldn't even tell you which one, but you mentioned that you have to decide if the pain of the problem is greater than the pain of the solution. Well, that morning, I decided that the pain of my weight was greater than any pain a gym could throw at me. I always had thought it would be just too painful to get back in the gym, and I know no diet had ever worked for me, and I've tried more than a few. So I was on the hunt for a gym. I found a new one that opened five minutes from my house. I went down and signed up. Fast forward 10 months, I'm happy to say I've lost 21 kilos. I don't have any clothes in my wardrobe that fit. I can keep up with the 20-year-olds in the classes. I've taken up rock climbing as a sport. And my BMI has gone from 32 to 24, and my waist 105 to 78. Thanks for turning on the light bulb in my head and realizing I can do something about it. Thank you for your podcast every week. It's just so bloody wonderful that, you know, to read these emails, it just ab absolutely makes my day. And it makes me so grateful that I get to be this part of your week. You listening right now, that I'm a part of your week is just a, a really, really special thing. And I take this, uh, I take this very seriously. And I'm very grateful to be a part of your week because you are busy. You've got things to do. You've got family that want to see you. Hungry people that need to be fed. You're out there working or you're out there making life for the good for other people around you. And I'm grateful, very grateful that I am able to be a part of your week. Speaking of podcasts, very quickly, I would like to ask you that uh, 
there's a new podcast over at Mamma Mia that I'm working on. We did a special run of four episodes to uh, test the waters, and it would be super helpful if you went over and left a review. The podcast is called Love Life. Uh, there's a picture of me and my glasses that I unfortunately left on a plane, but in a flannel, in a black and white shirt on the cover. If you were to go to iTunes, have a listen to it, and if you liked it, if you could leave a rating and a review, that would help us a lot, a lot. I promise this podcast won't go away, but I am, you know, trying to build this independent digital broadcasting thing as much as I can, and so it would be really helpful if you went and had a listen to that and, and left a note there. That would be very, very, very helpful. Let me tell you about my guest today. Um, Simon Gillett is a patron of the Amy Gillett Foundation, which is an Australian safe cycling lobby that, amongst other things, pushes for safer conditions for all road users, particularly around getting the Amita Matters laws passed around the country. Amy Gillett was an Olympic rower who competed in the Atlanta Olympics as part of the ladies' eight, not women's eight, sorry. Simon Gillett was her coach. Uh, they were married a few years later. Amy Gillett was married to Simon at the time of her tragic death in Germany in 2005. Um, from Wikipedia, I'll read it, that uh, Amy Gillett died in a car crash near Zwellenroda in Germany on the 18th of July 2005. A young German driver lost control of her car, drove headfirst into six members of the Australian Women's Cycling Squad who were preparing for a race. Five of Amy Gillett's teammates suffered injuries, most of them very serious. Katie Brown, Laurie Ann Graham, Kate Nichols, Alexis Rhodes and Louise Yaxley were taken immediately to hospital with Rhodes and Yaxley suffering major trauma. Graham and Brown had incurred fractures and Nicole, Nichols had torn tendons requiring surgery. Gillett was undertaking a doctorate at the University of South Australia at the time of her death. The newly qualified driver was fined 1,440 euro and disqualified from driving for eight months. The Amy Gillard Foundation's aims were to provide financial support for the rehabilitation of Amy's five injured team members, fund and administer a scholarship program for young women cyclists to support their academic endeavours and sporting endeavours, and support and promote projects aimed at road safety awareness among cyclists and motorists. And I'm very grateful to have been a part of helping the Amy Gillard Foundation out last year. You remember in September I was uh, down in Lawn in Victoria for the Amy's Grand Fondo. Um, the laws that the Amy Gillett Foundation have been fighting for have been passed in many parts of Australia. They've been passed in Queensland, and as a cyclist, I've noticed a big difference there. They're yet to be passed in Victoria. Um, the move to make the laws a law was actually recommended five months ago. We're in March now, so it recommended back in um, November, October, by a parliamentary inquiry but the laws have not been passed into legislation. So if you're Victorian, uh, could you please get in touch with uh, two members of parliament, Daniel Andrews and Luke Donnellan, let them know. Their Instagram handles are, it's pretty simple, Daniel Andrews MP on Instagram and Luke Donnellan, two N's, two L's. Luke Donnellan MP. Just find them on Instagram and just tag them and say, hey, meet them matters. Let's make it happen. Because it's apparently the vote's in their hands. I spoke with Simon... Gillett the day before Amy's Grand Fondo, which is a 120-kilometre-long road race along a fully closed Great Ocean Road, which is an extraordinarily astonishing piece of Australian roadway. Beautiful scenery. And um, I raced it last year, and I can't wait to do it again. Even if you're not into cycling, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation with Simon, who's had to face 
some very, very tough challenges in his life. And uh, I'm sure you'll find inspiration in listening to this. Oh. Olympic-level coaches have a way of speaking that you just want to listen to, and that's exactly what Simon's got. So I certainly hope you enjoy this. It's uh, an afternoon, a chat, while uh, my wife and stepdaughter went for a wander along the ocean in Lawn. Me and Simon sat down and had a conversation, and here it is. Well, how are you, man? You good? Yeah, good, good. Thanks for coming well, over. Thanks for, thanks for you coming down. Yeah. Oh, mate, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have missed it. I'm just, a, I'm just sorry that I said, I said yes to this, and then proceeded to get so damn busy. I didn't have any time to ride, yeah. so I'm, I'm apologising in advance for my poor form tomorrow. There'll be plenty of people out there to ride with. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> What's the time limit on the course? Ah, uh, you'll make it. <laughs> <laughs> it must be like. Well, thanks for coming to talk to me because I can't imagine that this is an easy weekend. It must be a fun weekend, but it can't be an easy weekend for you. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's all, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a time of reflection, but um, that's all good. And yeah. uh, the weather's like turning. We've had like five years of amazing weather, so we think Amy's smiling down on us and it looks like it's gonna, we're going to miss a bullet this year with bucket load of rain early in the week and it's going to turn to crap on Monday. So right. we're going to get there just in time. You met, did did you come from this part of this, the town? No, actually, originally Geelong, uh -huh. and then Melbourne. I went to university in Melbourne. Then where was I after that? Adelaide, then Canberra, and now Ballarat. Right. And was it in uh, was it in Melbourne that you first uh, got on the in a rowing boat? No, I rode at school at uh, Geelong College. Oh yeah. So um, that was back in the seventies, and um, then they had a. They were trying to put together a lightweight squad to get back to to, to reclaim a world championship that the Melbourne Uni guys had won in in '74, and uh, they ran this trial for like all these people all over Australia trying to get into this squad, and and uh, the two young upstarts were myself and Peter, Peter Anthony, who you, whose name you probably know, um, sort of made it through that process because they were probably the maddest and toughest of those guys, and yeah, just that's how it went from there internationally. So first year out of school was world championships. What was that like? Like first year out of high school from Geelong, and suddenly, where were the world championships that year? Uh, Amsterdam. Holy moly! <laughs> and um, well, we went with really high. We we went with really high expectations. We we're only only going there to win, and um, we actually ended up losing the final by about ten centimeters, and we were devastated. What kind of boat? Four, right. cost, lightweight four, and uh, so we'd um, yeah, we were really really pissed off that we. And we didn't get to, uh, get to win. With the, and the crew that beat us, the French crew, had won the World Championship the previous two years. So we weren't happy. Far out. What, were you 18 or barely? Yeah, 18, yeah. yeah. I've, I know I've ridden my bike around that course in Amsterdam, the, the one Boss in the middle Barn. of the park. Yeah, the Boss Barn, yeah. Oh, glorious course. Yeah, full of carp. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just so beautiful. Oh, there's my girls. They're going for a walk. That's Audrey and, and Gigi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> going for a walk, going for a walk along the beach. Uh, wow. That was, so what, what was that like the first time you saw international competition? What was it about that? that we were really fortunate in that two of the guys in that boat plus the coach had were in the crew that won the world championship in 74 and then they ran third in 75 and then there was no team in 76 and then 70. So they, their mission was to go back and get that medal in 77. So 
it was pretty cool having those experienced guys, level heads, been there, done that, as good role models, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, at that level, like I, I classify people into two groups. There's people you want to go into battle with and those that you wouldn't. And the ones that you want to go into battle with are the guys that are level-headed and they don't, you know, calm under pressure, et cetera, which was what all those guys were. So and did you experience. pick up some of that uh, calm under pressure? Is- oh, I think I've always been a little bit like that. I love a, I love a challenge and uh, I love, a, you know, a pressure situation. So I actually enjoy that. Yeah. Um, and I think you'll find most athletes that are successful probably fit that bill a little bit because you, if you go to pieces, you're never going to perform. So, Is it something that you can learn? Probably to an extent. But if you put enough pressure on, people always revert back to to uh, what their natural state is, I reckon. Mm. You see that in coaching all the time. So, What do you what do you tell men and women that you're coaching who, who do kind of start to lose it a bit when things get tough? You don't tell them anything because they don't make it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you basically – the job as a coach is to make – is to lead people through a series of experiences where they find out what they're capable of and, and what they can do. And the ones that don't handle that just won't make it through that process. So it'll be a self-selection process. Can you pick that when you first meet someone? You can pick the, – the, those people also tend to have the characteristics is they never, they never lie down, they never die. So um, they'll always be trying to do the next hardest thing even when they can't. So you see that characteristic really early versus the people that, yeah, they're pulling the pin and you know that they've got a bit left. So that sort of characteristic shows up pretty early. Right. And as a coach, like particularly if you're dealing with younger athletes, you never want to tell someone they're not going to make it. You want them to discover that and make that decision because otherwise till the day they die they would have been the Olympic champion but for that bastard who kicked me out of the program, you know. So you just make the program too hard for them. Right. And they choose to make their choices themselves. So in one way you're helping them live the rest of their lives no longer an athlete? In a way, yeah, because it's their decision. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's really important. It, you, we've, we've seen this recently, particularly with, you know, cycling in Britain and where people have been told, tap on the shoulder, you're not good enough. Well, there's other ways to do that. You can lead them to, to make that decision themselves, which is a far better outcome for everybody. So. So who is it that you kind of refer to when you're making coaching decisions? Who was the coach in your life that you kind of modelled yourself about? Well, I was really fortunate as an athlete in the last three or four years of my career to be coached by a gentleman called Rusty Robertson who was a New Zealander, um, super laid-back dude, um, super technical eye, really good people manager and um, just basically – coached by modelling almost so that there's no sitting down, we're going to all do this. It's basically the, his demeanour was what you sort of absorbed and I think that's a way that the best coaches operate. And, um, yeah, really cool under pressure and we had some we had some, some interesting pressure situations that we went through and, uh, yeah, just a great role model and you'll find people all over the world and you'll see them popping up now as coaches that were coached by Rusty Robertson and they're always good coaches. Because we see in the, in, the, in the movies, you always see there's the coach that picks the kid from the wrong side of the tracks and then that's, that's the one coach you see and then you see the coach who delivers that incredible halftime speech. Um, does the, any of that relate to what it's actually like trying to lead young men and women to, to sporting victory? <coughs> I'm not a big one on the halftime speech or the big prep talk. I, I'm more about just talking to athletes about you've done all, 
and they will know they've done all the work. They've done more work. They can honestly sit on the start line, look left and right and go, I know that no one's suffered as much as I have to get to here and that gives them a confidence in their in their ability to do what they need to do. So if if you've got an athlete that goes gets to that level and they haven't got that confidence in themselves and you haven't done your job properly. So it's a leading athletes through a process of experiences that they've they've pushed themselves way past where they ever thought they could. So they're quite confident that they've no one else has done that. And is that your job rather than, you know, aside from things like technique that I'm guessing that there's only so many ways you can row a boat. Like there's only so many ways you can do a pedal stroke. But it's the stuff that happens between your ears and behind your eyes that sets you apart from the athlete next to you, in front of you or behind Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And, and you can give athletes experiences that are outside of the sport they're in. Like, you know, we would go 14 hours on a mountain bike in the mountains, literally in the bush with no tracks and don't know where you're going to finish up. You don't know how long it's going to be to get home and you run out of food and you hunger flat and people just battle through that. And um, they're the sort of things that they draw back on when the t- when the chips are really down. They just yeah. go, yeah, I know that you guys haven't done that. Right. So. But that's fascinating what you said. Like I lead people through an exp- a series of experiences to discover what they're actually capable of. So you're not basically showing them here's a path to victory. You're showing them you're capable of victory, but you just don't know it yet. Yeah, basically. And, wow. And you're forcing them to, to um, dig so deep that they're, each time, like you're trying to find out how deep they can dig and they've got to learn that themselves. And so I always put it in a rationale that if you get to the start line and it's the hardest thing you've ever done is about to come up, you're not going to go that well. Like you need to be getting to the start line and going, I've done much worse than this. Because rowing is an incredibly painful sport. It's like a, it's a it's a battle of pain and trying to maintain perfect technique. And uh, if you haven't been through much worse, then your frame of reference is set all wrong. Well, mate, I can honestly tell you as part of the fifth four of the under-14s, <laughs> St. Joseph's squad, uh, the 1988 head of the river, I know the pain you're talking about. <laughs> Do you know, it always amazes I cannot work this out. You watch swimmers, even the 1,500-metre swimmers or even the 800s and 400s, which is a fairly, fairly long event, and they finish their event and they're leaning on the lane ropes with a smile on their face checking the, the time. Whereas in a rowing boat, as you know, there's no way you can even sit comfortably. You're trying to get the weight off your backside. You're just in agony completely and you can't trying even not breathe. To vomit. Yeah. And I'm looking, I'm looking at these swimmers and I'm going, how can you finish an event like that in such a composed way where you're not obviously super distressed? Yeah. Um, I'm not a good swimmer, so I've never worked out. <laughs> Yeah, they do that. We, our, our, our rowing coach used to always tell us about some Japanese crew that where two of the guys died at the Yeah, at they the, rated the, like 60 strokes a minute. At the finish yeah. line. They basically yeah. went all the way to the end and then two of the blokes and the eight died. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the famous story then. I've heard that story. Yeah. Yeah. And then other strokes every time uh, my, my coach would say, Kansberg, I've seen people killed like that. <laughs> like basically the, the sweeper would come up and take you under the head yeah. and then throw you out of the boat yeah. and you're knocked out and then you can't breathe and you're yeah. dead. Then you're yeah. dead. Yeah. But I had a great time. Uh, the only problem about rowing where I rowed is that if you fell in on skulls when we started, the Brisbane River at the time was not the sort of thing you'd want to fall into. You get, no. <laughs> Plus you've got the cats roaring up and down. <laughs> Early in the morning. Oh, this is before the city cats, but okay. there was definitely bull sharks. Yeah. 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 You yeah. get out of the water fairly quickly. Yep. When you're, when you're a little kid. Yeah, I've, I've seen photos of people's sculling blades down on the canals at um, 
the gold case where they've been chewed on by bull sharks. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Yeah. Good motivation. This <laughs> the other good motivation is when you go to altitude training in Austria and the water's like two degrees. That's another good motivation. Oh, good gracious. Yeah. Uh, so you are, are, are a rowing coach and then you – how did you transition from – you know, being a, an athlete to then kind of getting out of the boat but staying in the sport? Um, I took on a role as Director of Coaching Education, so set, so setting up the initial coaching accreditation courses that Level 1, Level 2, Level 3 that coaches would do um, through the coaching accreditation system and, as, and I was a national team selector through to 88 and then... Um, but how, was, did you, how did you line that up while you were still rowing or...? No, nah, just... I'm never that organised. <laughs> No, it just sort of happened. I was asked to do the job yeah. um, when I retired at the grand old age of 23. And um, and then after that, I took a job as a head coach of the Sports Institute in Adelaide, which was setting up that program from scratch. And that was a really interesting interesting time. And then um, head coach role for a few years leading up to 96. But um, yeah, the South Australian role was quite interesting because um, the Sports Institute there was the first state institute and it was set up by a a dude called, um, I think his name, he was a coach at North Adelaide Footy Club, Mike Noonan, and um, he was involved in government department of Reckon Sport and he wanted to set up an institute, so he basically took a, a, a small staff out of the Reckon Sport and set up the Sports Institute with the blessing of the number one ticket holder of um, North Adelaide Footy Club, which was John Bannon, the Premier. <laughs> and so they basically operated like a statutory authority without that ever being going through parliament oh and uh, they had swimming athletics and cycling in there as the first three sports and rowing was the fourth one mm -hmm. and we used to operate out of these um portable buildings attached to the college of advanced education at underdale and um then once the program got a bit of success we outgrew that and had to move and that's another story but i originally started there with a budget outside a salary of about 30 grand which was less than like a like a school program in Melbourne back in the mm. um, late 80s. And um, it was a interesting process getting the funding up to where we needed it to be. And we, we uh, I remember when I first arrived there sitting in my little little desk and Noonan would walk past every morning and after three weeks he goes, why aren't you coaching? I said, we don't have any boats in the state worth taking to a national selection regatta or a championship. And he, he said, well, you can't sit here. I said, I've got a contract for four years. It says I can sit here. <laughs> And he goes, right, meet me Friday, Paul's Fish Cafe, 12 o'clock. So I turn up there and it's the Premier, the Minister for Sport and the CEO of the um, Department of Rec and Sport. And he said, um, we had sort of niceties and formalities and he said, what do you need? And I said, we need $240,000 to buy this, these boats that we can take to a um, national selection level competition. So the, minister, the Premier turns to the Minister and says, do we have 240 grand? And the Minister turns to the CEO and says, do we have 240 grand? And the CEO goes, yep, only don't get their tennis courts this year. Job done. So <laughs> off we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we order all these boats from um, the boat builders and, and um, they duly arrive some some weeks later. And I'm still sitting there and then he says, why aren't you coaching? He said, we don't have any athletes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just about at a you know, steam coming out of his ears. He goes, why did you tell me that, you know, three weeks ago? I said, because I'm in a much better position now. I've got <laughs> Boats are no athletes rather than none, none of anything. And um, he says, what do you need? I said, we need to start a talent identification program, but we also need to poach some people from interstate to get to get started. And he said, um, 
if we take people because we were the first institute with offering support for athletes in a state level he said well will that create any flack i said yeah absolutely he goes well i'll take care of the flack you go and do the poaching so off we went and we started off with a lightweight men's squad and started our talent identification program in that first year so that's how we got started <laughs> and then it went so well that we ran out of boats really quickly oh so that's good I, yeah so i, I said to Neil, we need more boats he said Bloody hell, meet me at 12 o'clock, Paul's Fish Cafe Paul's Friday. Paul's Fish, yeah. mate. Paul's doing great. Basically the same deal. Yeah. And uh, we got another 250 grand for, for more boats. And then what happened was they, the other state institutes were starting to come into the into the system and the, the order time for a boat became longer and longer and longer. So if you – and we had this crazy February, February financial year. Don't know why that was. And our selection regattas were in March, April for national teams. So – I've said we, we need to order boats back in November um, if we're to receive them in time for the main part of the season. And, uh, and then he says, well, just move the financial year. I don't care. So we, we so we moved our financial year back three months. And then I thought, this is a great look because they never adjusted the budget. So we had nine-month budget, 12-month budget spent in nine months. So the next year I said, I said we need to change, we can change these boats over because that was the time we paid sales tax and we bought them tax-free as a, as a government organisation, you could sell them in the tax market and virtually the same price that you bought them for and keep the boat fleet renewed. But I said, we, you know, the, the waiting list is getting longer. So in five year, in four years, we had five budgets because we kept moving the budget back three months, all signed off. So, all so you've got, not only have you got the ability, as you say, to move athletes through a series of experiences to discover their own ability, you've also clearly got the ability to remove bureaucrats through a series of experiences. <laughs> well, that's a whole other story, yes. Yeah. <laughs> because I guess you can't really, uh, you know, be someone who operates at your level if you can't play both games, can you? Unfortunately, you have to at that level. And the, and the story about there's – there's a whole bunch of stories, but um, about how we outgrew that premises because the government saw that these sports were being successful, so they just want to add more sports and uh, big alarm bells for me because they're not changing the budget that much. So we managed to convince um, the director to put in place a performance-based um, funding arrangement, which means established sports have a greater advantage because oh. they've already got the rungs on the board. So that sort of preserved our, our income. But then we ran out of space. They just physically could not fit in these buildings and so – I said to Nudin one day, I, every time I go to the lake at Westlakes, I go past this empty high school at um, Kidman Park. I said, I reckon we should bloody move in there. So we went down and had a look, and it's been abandoned for like five years. So we went down, cut the locks, and moved into this building. And Noonan gets Telstra tell, tell in there to set up the phone lines in the library and reception area. And it was a typical high school, like just a square, chunky building. Mm long rectangular three levels so we got every athlete on scholarship and every coach in there one weekend with sledgehammers and we gutted the ground floor so made an open plan from all the, the classrooms like the best episode of the block ever the best episode of the block ever <laughs> and we threw all that rubbish up on the first floor and we basically moved in down there and we cl opened up we put the weight lifting center in the tech study so they had the timber floor so you could drop the weights and then we had um sports science in the home ec building and Basically got it all set up. And I think we were there four years before the education department realised that we were in there. And then there was a big bun fight between the Department of Education and the Department of Sport and eventually they just signed the, the property over. So, And the Sports Institute is still there today. Imagine doing that today. Yeah, you're not going to get away with that, are you? No, no. So that was really good. So from what I understand, 
you first met Amy when she came to be uh, – you, you were coaching her, is that correct? Yeah, she was um, identified in our, our early talent identification program. So that would have been 90, mm-hmm. maybe 89, 90. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you were, and she, was, uh, she was a rower and you were working with her there? Yeah. Yep. Uh, she has a similar path to uh, another friend of mine who I, I believe you know, uh, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. Yeah. In that she was looking for an elite and into elite sports through rowing uh, and then pursued that for a while and then switched to cycling, which is similar to what, what Amy did, correct? Yeah, Amy was identified in the Talent ID program in um, South Australia. And, um, excuse me. And, um, so that process was really basically trying to identify those athletes that didn't die, didn't sort of give up and, and and quit early. And the way we did that, you need to run a, a test where skill's not an issue. So we use a, an arm, leg, bike ergo. Mm-hmm. And it's a really simple test where you just keep increasing workload every couple of minutes until the athlete decides they can't do the next step. And when you plot heart rate against workload, it's a linear relationship. So it goes up in a straight line until they become absolutely exhausted, then it levels out. And when they're really spent, it actually starts to drop again. So what you're looking for is not the not how far the athlete Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It gets along that curve. You're looking for the ones that are still trying the next workload when their heart rate's on the way down. And so you would, we would test two or 3,000 people a year and pick 20. Wow. And then the ones we would pick would be the ones that would keep going. Because um, that identifies within them the, the will to just keep which pushing. Which you can't teach. That's oh. something people have or they don't have. Wow. And then you're We've looking, got those bikes at the gym I sometimes yeah. go to. They're, they're, what do they call them? Assault bikes. Yeah. They're, oh, my God. They hurt. <laughs> so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that, char- that mental characteristic of toughness. And then oh, you, and, yeah, no. And then you're trying to teach, then you're trying to teach them the skills of rowing. Yeah. So that's how we ran that program. We were taking, we were taking athletes in two years to junior world championship gold medalists from scratch. So, so you need to get like twenty thousand k's under the belt. Twenty thousand rowing rowing k's under oh, that's the belt. A lot. Forty thousand to get to a senior world championship gold medal. Isn't that interesting that that it's it's in that rehearsal of the movement where the and the trick is, if you get them and they've never been to boat before, 
in their coach properly, you can teach them without error, without error if you teach it properly. So you're not trying to then undo all these. I hope bad you habits. never see me on an ergo. Because <laughs> <laughs> I still row. Uh, the under fourteen, exactly the, same way. Yep. the under fourteen, fifth four. We were the heavyweights. I think I don't think there was anyone under under ninety kilos, and we were fourteen. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we were the big boys. We were the big kids. Absolutely. So, at what point uh, did at what point did um, did did Amy s- switch from uh, rowing to cycling? She missed out on the Olympic team in two thousand. Uh, been in the Olympics in ninety six. Had won two world championships, one in the single scale as a junior, and one in the pair. And um, then was in the women's aid at multiple world championships and Olympics in 96 and then through a s- series of selection decisions, which I wasn't involved in at that time um, because I'd, I'd pulled the pin after 96, um, missed out on the crew. You could debate with fairness or otherwise. Um, and then decided, de- pretty devastated, decided to have a crack at cycling because we'd done a lot of riding um, in training uh, for rowing as a as a cross training um, sport, mm-hmm. and um, there was an interesting um, event happened in '93 at the World Championships in Norway, the Junior World Championships, where Jamie had won the pair with a, with another girl from South Australia, and the World Cycling Championships were on in Norway at the time in Oslo, and the organisers had a competition going on a bike, like on a bike ergo, with all these like sponsored by I think Carlsberg and someone else, so there was pallets of beer and all this stuff on offer if you won it and it was set up in the um, the mall in, in Oslo so Amy and her pair partner have gone in there and she's creamed everybody on this um, on this competition and walked away with all the goodies which we thought was pretty good and um, always was a good good bike rider so um, and rowing and cycling essentially are the same exercise with, le- with less upper body work but it's the same power transmission through the hips and uh, so that's why rowers translate pretty well if they can learn the bike skills and so she was kind of coming into cycling against people who'd perhaps come up through the junior club system and things like that yeah was it difficult for her to to get into those teams yeah it was it's always hard to get a a start internet like it's it's quite easy to get the domestic competition you want but you've got to get international experience to get that next step and that's what our scholarship with the foundation is about, giving that person the experience, the opportunity to get that experience. So Amy started on the track and then moved to road cycling, was very good as a time trialist. Um, in, nine, in 2004, very nearly won the road nationals on a solo breakaway for 120 kilometres and uh, it took six of the best riders in this, in this country to catch her in the last lap and then she still let out one of them for the sprint. So... Um, Really well suited to time trial type, which is, well, you would expect that coming from a rowing background. So what what led her to how – how did she get over to Europe? Um, she had an opportunity with the, the Australian development team. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a really good opportunity with John Beasley as a coach, who's now the coach of the Malaysian team, who won their first medal at this uh, Olympics mm. just gone in Rio, which I'm very excited about. So John sort of got her skills on the track and then on the road and sort of mentored her. And uh, then she was noticed, obviously, by the national national selectors and, and got those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, were there events at an international qualifying level in Australia that women <coughs> could participate in? There was one or two. There was a World Cup in um, held in Geelong, and there was 
there was a uh, an event called the Tour de Snowy, which was was run last, I think, in about two thousand and two, mm. and that had some a lot of international riders. So there were a couple of opportunities there, but not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. It's not like spending a season in, in Europe where you no. can just go from thing to thing to thing. No, no. And so that's what led her to go over to Europe and yeah, and race a lot. Yeah. To Absolutely, get yeah. that international to experience. Get that international experience, and she had that opportunity with the with the national team, which was which is where she was headed. Yeah, are you okay to talk about? Yeah, what happened? Like, yeah. So, do you remember? You know that time, that particular season. It would have been over our winter when yep, she was, was over there. Yeah, two thousand and five. Um, we were married in two thousand and four, and um, they were heading over. It was obviously lead up to Commonwealth Games two thousand and six, which were back in Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the team was away for oh, a couple of months. I think she'd had a break in the middle, came back, and her head headed over again. So they were training for the event in Turrigan, which is a five-day tour, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I was actually due to go over the following week for for a few weeks to catch up. Um, and she was on a on a on a group ride, a training ride. Yeah, it was the day before the um, that tour started, and uh, the girls were out for a training ride. And um, Amy was really targeting the time trial uh, in that event. And <clears throat> as fate would have it, um, they were just coming back into town from that training ride, and and um, Amy was just doing a final time trial of it. So she'd passed the group and headed out up the road on her own, and that's when the car cleaned them all up, and she copped the. The first part part of the impact because she was way out the front. So it had the car passed a, across the centre line, or what happened? It had it had basically coming up opposite direction. Had from what we can tell, um, it was a young driver and he just recently got a licence. Uh, whether she was distracted or whatever, but dropped a couple of wheels off the um, edge of the road on the opposite side of the road, and then overcorrected, lost oh. control. So. When that sort of thing happens, you don't get a phone call, do you? I got um, I got home from a training early training ride, and um, my son Reese said, "Oh, police were here earlier on, and we'd we'd had an incident about two weeks prior to that when Amy was home. There's kids running around the street throwing eggs at the house, and and um, so I thought that was what this because she she was pissed off because we just built this new house, and um, so I thought that's what this was about." Anyway, so I've jumped in the shower about oh, seven thirty, I guess, and the and the police arrived back, and I sort of knew then that something serious had happened because they wouldn't come back twice just for talk about kids throwing eggs at a house. So that was how I got that news. Yeah, far out, man. What even what even goes through your mind? Uh, yeah, well, disbelief. Um, yeah. Just you know, calling around, just letting people know what what had happened. Talking to Amy's parents, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, just the whole world comes crashing down. Yeah. And I guess you then have to, like, oh, shit, I better buy a plane ticket. I guess you then have to go over, don't you? Yeah, there was all that that side of things, you know, getting Amy's body back and, and funeral arrangements and, and um, yeah, just the whole or that which people you know I'm, you know you didn't go over alone did you did you have someone with you no I went over with a really good friend Rod Katz um, who's a board member a family board member of the foundation oh right and um, who actually looks a bit like me she's my body double when <laughs> when you can't appear <laughs> when yeah no, when the shit hits the fan yeah um, and um, yeah so I went through that whole process and it was actually during the flight over that we talked about the possibility of um, of setting up a foundation so um, but 
the you know one of the hardest things is the fact that like I'm the sort of person I like sorting problems out. You know, I'll have a challenge and you know used to getting things sorted and this is just one you just can't you can't do a thing about obviously and um, just trying to come to terms with that realisation that you know that's nothing's changing here no matter what what you do you just have to deal with it so. for anybody that I mean there'll be people I mean everybody's lost someone close to them yeah. um, but I've you know some people listening may have lost someone like an, an, an intimate partner um What's if someone ever has to go through something like that? What would what would you say the the thing that helped you most through the grieving process was? I think um, <coughs> staying engaged with friends. And I was really fortunate. I had a, a, a Tim Hyde, who was our best man at our wedding. He came down and, and um, from Sydney and just stayed for a week or two, and and um, that was you know super helpful. Just people. You know, just staying in a routine, still going for a ride with the troops every morning, um, all that sort of thing. Because but, all you want to do is sit on the couch. You want yeah, to hide. And, and it's just trying to, like, you, the hardest thing is that you just can't believe that Amy's not coming through the door sometime soon, you know. It's just that, just trying to get that realisation through your head. But, um, so that was July and... Like most blokes, you know, you think you're pretty tough and you're, you're doing pretty well. And I remember by um, around Christmas time that year, I was over in um, actually just before Christmas and I was starting to get these like diaphragm cramps where you just couldn't breathe. So your diaphragm would cramp up and you couldn't breathe in or out for like 10, 15, 20 seconds. And um, I, fly, I fly myself, I'm a pilot, so I'd flown over to Adelaide to be Amy's parents at Christmas time. And that was getting worse and worse. And I actually went to see um, a family friend who's a doctor with a cycling team over there and they couldn't work out what it was. And um, I was due to fly back. And this was starting to happen like in an ever-increasing frequency. Originally it was like two or three times a day and then it became like every 20 minutes. And um, it was actually quite scary. And <clears throat> I was due to fly back to Victoria. So I'm taxiing out at Adelaide Airport and you're trying to, call, you're trying to make radio calls and you get this diaphragm spasm where you can't talk so got through that got home and then um some friends of mine said look you should go and you know see a psychologist and just have a talk to him i'm going oh bullshit you know that's not going to help anything and um so i did and it was actually just going through that process and talking to um an independent third party about things that you can't really talk to amy's friends about and amy's parents about or whatever and straight away those symptoms just disappeared. So that was a real eye-opener to me of that that physical mind link. Is it incredible, the physical manifestations, the actual yeah. physical pain manifestations of uh, yep. mental pain? Yeah. And I would never believe that possible until I went through that experience and it was actually really, it was really quite amazing. It's terrifying. That, you can't breathe. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's but super if someone, scary. If someone said to me, "That's just linked to what's going on in your mind." I would, I would have said, "No, you're nuts." You know, that's no way. Yeah. But that was so. Probably, if I had one, um, one tip for anybody is that find somebody that you can talk to, who's probably a step removed from the process, uh, where you can just talk about whatever you need to talk about. So, yeah. And something as guys, like we're pretty bad at that. 
We are. Best of times. So, at yeah. the best of times. We yeah. tend to want to go to a doctor only if we're on fire. And even then, <laughs> even it's like, then, I've got another yeah. arm. It'll <laughs> exactly. be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my number one tip. Yeah. 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 And through that process, I mean, as a coach, you would no doubt, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you're pushing people to a particular, you know, barrier and then it's on the other side of that barrier that the growth happens. What growth did you, I mean, did you find any growth out of this trauma? I'm very not very introspective. <laughs> um, I think I think probably the one learning for me was that there are, there's going to be situations that you can't manage and control, and you have to be able to deal with that. Um, so acceptance. Yeah, n- not always try and sort the situation out, but um, I think just an acceptance that you're a small player in a big scheme here, and you're not in control of everything. So um, that's another learning that. Uh, we all think we're we're pretty much in charge of of proceedings, and we're actually not. So, it can, yeah. Thanks for thanks for sharing that, man. It's, I mean, <laughs> but no, it's it's it's. Yeah. There's people who listen to this show that would find a lot of uh, of solace in that. And mm. and and the thing about speaking to you is that when when I'm on the road, when I ride my bicycle, and and unfortunately. If, if I ride for an hour, 45, an hour minute, if, I, if I'm like a commuting around Brisbane, yep. maybe 1.4, maybe two times I'll have a near miss, yeah. unfortunately. And I wish I could say to everybody, one of those people, it's like, I'm, I'm someone's fiance. I'm a stepdad. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm not just a thing yep. on the road. And you, you're sitting here, you are talking you know, every cyclist is not just one person, are they? That's very, that's very true, and that's a, that's a message we try and get out: is that when you pass somebody, you should pass them as if it was a member of your own family. That yeah. should be in the back of your mind. But I think the other side to this story is that imagine if you found yourself in a situation with a fatality as a driver. Oh my god! You don't walk away from that unscathed either. That affects you and your family and your entire life as well. And who wants to be? In that position, yeah. So it's something an, to think about. When you go, if you have the fortune to, to get on a plane and say, for example, go to a country where cycling is is a part of society. So I'm very fortunate that I worked in the Netherlands for a while, and like that's just yeah. nirvana. And it never used to be used to be not like that. No, it yeah. wasn't only until the oil crisis. Yeah, it was only yeah. until the oil crisis, and they started Everyone having. Everyone had two cars. Yeah, they yep. did. Yep, they absolutely did, and that's extraordinary how that country changed. Yeah. how they just as a as a group will as the society will went. I think they had like a kid died every week, and they said we've had enough. That's it. Yep. Yep. We're stopping this. Yeah, and they tore up roads and they built bike paths. Yep, and. Now you go there and there's women my mum's age and my mum's in her mid-70s. The only mode of transport they have is a bicycle. A bike, yeah. And they're fit as a fiddle. Yeah. And <laughs> you look at their calves and you go, yeah, look at them. Yeah. They don't have calves. <laughs> no, calves. They're calves. Oh, they're calves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're vital and they yeah. kind of get around yeah. and they're constantly moving and, yeah. I'll tell you something. Amy dabbled a bit in triathlon yeah. um, in the early 2000s and um, – I was amazed we went to a, a triathlon event up at uh, Penrith at, on the rowing course up there and that was an age group event and there were people there in their 60s and 70s where if you didn't see their face and just saw their body, you would swear they were 30. 
amazing. Yeah, it just shows that if you if you keep it's, we know this. If you keep using it, you look after it. Yeah, yeah. So part of the, I guess part of working and starting a foundation to educate a society that unfortunately is quite aggressive towards cyclists and 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 public policy that is leaning towards that of cars and and road builders. Um, Part of that is, I guess, really trying to understand the psychology of what goes on in a driver's mind when they see a cyclist. Have you done much work in that in that area? Well, I'm probably not the best one to talk about this. We've, we have um, a researcher, Marilyn, Dr. Marilyn Johnson, who was our first uh, PhD student that we funded through. Mm. He's probably done a lot more research in this area. But um, it's changing behaviour is the hard, hard thing and it's, it's where we try and direct a lot of our efforts because... Governments don't do a lot of it effectively because it's very hard to measure. They like to do things where they can measure outcomes and are not too keen on tackling things that are very hard to measure outcomes and get immediate uh, results. So that behaviour change is a really slow, slow process. Mm. But I think um, I think we're slowly winning that battle a little bit. And with the legislative change that's happened, and you'd, be, you'd know, be aware of that in Brisbane, Yeah, at least that is saying to motorists in a simple way, like cyclists are legitimate road users. And we go, everywhere you go, you go through this, hey, you don't pay registration and this and that. And hello, as you know, everyone that you rides a bike probably has two cars as well that is choose to ride that bike. And we know that registration doesn't pay for roads. And I did the calculations huh. um, because I was delivering some seminars a little while ago, because this question always comes up. And if you assume that your $500 rego, 250 goes to insurance and 250 goes to run the system, if if that costs nothing, that 250 multiplied by everybody that's got a car in the country would probably build about 70 kilometres of freeway. <laughs> so the old rego argument doesn't really stack up and people would be actually dismayed to learn that the 58 cents they pay to the government for every litre of fuel they buy still doesn't pay for roads. So What pays for roads? It's consolidated revenue. Right. And it was, certainly know in Brisbane, the, the Brisbane City Council pays for most of the roads. Yeah. And they maintain most of the roads. Yeah. And they maintain roads against damage caused by cars. Yeah. And cyclists don't damage roads that much. No. Yeah. That's why you pay rego based on the weight of your vehicle, right? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the insurance people pay is the is to, to, about road trauma, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's uh, so all those arguments can be really easily shot down. Yeah. And um, I remember when I went to school. This is going back a long time. Everybody rode to school. Mm. That was how you got to school. Yeah. Um, you get laughed at if you get dropped at the front gate. Yeah. If your parents, and if you did have to get driven one day, you'd ask them to drop you around the corner so no one saw you. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be my measure, I think, when we actually get back to a to a good position is when all the kids are riding their bikes to school again. Yeah. What? Um, so you can you can have the argument about um, uh, where the money goes, but what about? I hate having to slow down. What about that? I mean, that's a tricky one, isn't it? It is a tricky one and um, it's interesting you say that because, as you would know, as a commuter cyclist, you probably beat most cars to your destination <laughs> in peak hour anyway. It's not so, even funny. Yeah, so... And that pisses people off, to be honest. <laughs> well, I think maybe that's part of it is they, they're, they're going to their job they hate <laughs> and they're stuck in traffic that they can't move in and they get passed by some fit-looking dude on a bike and their, their life's just 
they're not happy. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But um, in terms of slowing down, we let's come back to what we talked about. Do you want to be the driver that that's involved in the fatality mm. for for ten seconds of your time? Which would which option would you take? Yeah. Um, and we know that with this legislation that's gone through in in um, Queensland and five other states, that part of that is enabling you to cross an unbroken centre line when safe to do so. Yeah. To get past a bunch of cyclists, and particularly if you're in hilly country, that doesn't take long to get no. past slow cyclists. So, I think that's going to start to remove a lot of that that angst. But you know, there's a lot of things that can uh, can hold up your day, and your day is going to be a lot longer if you end up. In the coroner's court, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. There's one thing that uh, really annoys me is when I'm a driver and I see a bloody cyclist run a stop sign or a red light because I'm like, or ride without a light. It's like, you're the reason people yell at me. Yeah, you're it's giving you. us a bad name. And as we all know, it only takes one or two people and everyone characterises the, the herd with the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because that argument always comes up, oh, cyclists run red lights and do that. And I go, well, what was the income from red light cameras in your state? Like it's millions and millions. So obviously yeah. motorists are doing it as well and, uh-huh. and we don't condone it on either side of the fence. But that's all those things are just side issues. Uh, I think we've just got to get back to the fact that that's a human being on a bike. It's not yeah. a cyclist. It's somebody's, as you said, brother, mother, partner, mm. father, sister, whatever, child. And we need to, we need to start thinking about our society a little more, which I think is – I think that's part of our major problem. It's not just a cyclist-motorist thing. It's it's how our society is now operating at a really detached level. Like how many people know their neighbours? It's mm. a good point. How many people have a beer with their neighbours or talk to them or know when they're coming and going or going on holidays or whatever? I'm, I'm sure that that level of community engagement is getting less and less and mm. that's why we don't have that, that sort of looking out for your neighbour – and your, the, your people in your community. Well, it's – I'd like to think I'm a fairly measured bloke until I've nearly been killed by a man in a white van. Then words come out, out of my mouth, mate, that <laughs> I generally don't ever say. It's, it's very hard as a cyclist not to scream at someone. I was like, you nearly fucking killed me. What yeah. the fuck are you doing? Yeah. What do you think this is? Like it's – but then all I'm doing is I'm – Fueling the fire. Yeah. 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 It's very hard. And, <coughs> yep, it's all, <laughs> you've hit that nail on the head there because that's a natural reaction. And my I'm, adrenaline I'm, is firing because yeah. I've, I've just had a wing mirror go past yeah. my elbow. Yeah. And, and where the, the correct response is probably, you know, imagine if I was your son and you did that. That's that's where you need to be points for it, but it's very hard to do in the head of the moment. Yeah. We're not all saints. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want the person, you know, part of me, part of the vigilante in me wants to let this person know, like if you're doing it to me, there's, it's only a matter of time before you do it to someone else and, yeah. and you're not, they're not so lucky to yeah. get away with it. And I think I remember Mary's mum saying to me, because she, she'd had a couple of incidents like that, and she she's actually gone up that drive and said, you made me feel really, really scared. So they've actually – because there's no point in arguing that who's right or wrong, what you – what you need to convey is that what you how you were made to feel oh. by that action, and I think that it's very, and it's very hard to do in the heat of the moment, but that's the, probably the correct response if you're going to have a communication. It's not start you did this, you did that. It's a matter of tell them how they made you feel, yeah, and that's probably the only thing that's going to make people think about what they're doing, right? So hard to do, but something to think about.
But uh, as a as a cyclist, I I do try very hard, even though it means I have to unclip and start again from a downhill. <laughs> um, I, I every stoplight, every stop sign, and I always I always wave whenever someone yep. goes past me. Give them a wave. Yep. Always give them a wave, and that, I, I guess that's a big part of what you guys do as well is promoting cyclists <clears> to, you know, putting the love out there first. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone responds well to a uh, to that, mm. even if they don't, even if they're grumpy. <laughs> This, nature. this is an extraordinary part of the world where we are. I mean, if I look out the window, there's the Bass Strait, like 45 metres that way. Um, how do you go about this, – this is a stretch of road that's world famous, all right? It's been in every car. It's sold millions of cars, this piece of road, because every commercial <laughs> is shot down here. How do you go about saying, hey, by the way, Governor Victoria, I'd like to shut 40-something k's of your best road on a weekend in peak season? <laughs> what do you reckon? Well, it's a, sort of the way I operate is I, <laughs> you, first thing is you start from the top down. Yeah. So um, I had the idea for this event and and this was part of Amy's – she loved training down here. We've got friends with a house in Anglesey, so we spent quite a bit of time riding down here. And um, so when I first thought of this, I thought, well, I need to speak to the mayor of both shires to – and you basically you're trying to sell an idea. So <clears throat> I Googled – the mayors of both shires and got their mobile numbers and rang them. And I was, I think I was driving somewhere at the time. I said, look, I'm, I introduced myself. They wouldn't know me from a bar of soap. And just said, I've got an idea for a great event that I think could become iconic and I need to talk to you about it. So I set up a meeting with both of them and explained what we wanted to do. And it's actually 120 kilometres of road that we that we close. And um, <coughs> I gave them a um, back-of-the-envelope calculation that I'd done on the economic benefit of, of such an event and I think I said it was probably worth five to six million to the to the community um, with the numbers that we would expect to get. And I think we pretty much hit that target in the first year. So basically, it was a series of meetings with the mayors and then with the councils, and then I had to deal with the councils' event staff because that would be a normal process: is fill out their paperwork, and I'm not big on that. Fill you out could, you couldn't you just get all the athletes with sledgehammers to show up again. <laughs> no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the correct process would be fill out their paperwork with an event application. Oh, I don't have time for that rubbish. So I think start at the top, sell the idea, and then go through, tidy up all the, the paperwork <laughs> later. So that's the way we did it. Yeah. And um, in the first year, I think we had 3,000 riders and we got economic data done and it pretty much matched the back of my, my back of the envelope calculation. And and then uh, the, the event's built ever since then. So. And now it's what? Something like $20 million benefit? Last year is 2021. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting talking to the um, the tourism people um, about the the event itself because the figures that I've seen, the average tourist bus, the spend of someone that jumps on a tourist bus goes down the ocean road and uh, looks at the Twelve Apostles and takes a photo is seventeen cents per head, and the spend from people coming to Amy's Grand Fondo averages eight hundred and seventy dollars per person and the thing we know is that people come and they bring two people with them so huh? 6,000 people is actually 18,000 in the area oh it's me I've got uh, yeah. Audrey and Gigi here yeah and they stay two to three nights yep and yeah so that's the, that's the profile so it's quite a unique um, demographic and when you look on the start line here um, tomorrow morning you look down at 5,000 bikes and most of them will get you a business class return ticket to Europe I was doing that maths in my head <laughs> You know, I was looking at how much, like, even my bike, which is 
nowhere near some of the dentist bikes that are out there. My bike, I don't know, in, in 2014, uh, I know 2013, I bought that for, uh, I was about four grand Yep. back then. And that was like the most money I'd ever spent on a bicycle in my life. And then I see guys walk driving past me, riding past me. I'm like, that's that's seventeen thousand dollars worth of bicycle. Yeah, not counting the the componentry or the, <laughs> yeah. anything else. Yeah, you know, there's a great meme getting around on Facebook. It says, "My biggest fear in life is that my wife will sell my bikes for what I told her I paid for them when I die." <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, the other one I like is like uh, get your kids involved in cycling. That way, they'll never have enough money for drugs and alcohol. Yeah, motorsports the same, <laughs> which is pretty much. <laughs> so when you, besides looking down and seeing, you know, the price of all the bikes and wishing that you owned a bike shop, um, when you're there at the start, what do you what do you feel when you see the, all those people who have come together for this event? Um, I just think um, it's a great it's a great thing for Amy's memory, and uh, this is a very important fundraiser uh, for the Amy Gillett Foundation both on, on the event plus the fundraising, which has been going absolutely gangbusters this year, thanks to a few little things we've introduced into the event. But that's it's just a sense of, um, of at least making something out of a, of a total disaster. And um, this event helps the foundation do its work and gives us a chance to communicate our messages to that particular demographic of cyclists who some of which may be those ones <laughs> that don't do the right thing all the time. So we a chance to message to them the importance of being good ambassadors um, and the importance of getting improving our image amongst the community. So, And also giving them the opportunity. This is a unique experience. There's, mm. there's no event in Australia where you get to ride 120 kilometres of closed road on this in these conditions. No, not And that's at all. a great privilege and we, we always encourage the riders to, you know, wave to the locals and thank the volunteers and, and just really do appreciate um, what what's on offer. But you also use this weekend as an opportunity to really do real great things for, for women cycling, don't you? Yeah, well, we introduced a couple of years ago the Women's NRS event because it's a, it's a no-brainer. We've got the roads all closed, the infrastructure's in place, so we, we put that event in place. We added the criterium in the main street. Uh, in the second year, and um, yeah, that's yeah really an important part of of the process, and we would like to actually get a men's event involved in this as well. So. And so the the criterium happens this afternoon, Saturday afternoon, and then the the women's peloton leaves first, don't yeah, they? Yeah, seven thirty, and they'll just absolutely fang it up and down the yeah. yeah. Wow. So their 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 motivation for the tail enders is um, not to get caught by the lead riders in the seven the nineteen to thirty four age group. Right. So, so they've got an hour start. But I say to them, um, it's the only event in the world where if you do get dropped from the bunch, you're going to have 5,000 mates to ride home with in the, in the peloton that's following up. <laughs> Whereas in a normal event, if you get dropped, you're riding home on your own. So, right. Yeah. But that, so that, using the roads being closed, you've got <clears> this opportunity to provide a world-class um, timed event that counts to an international point standard or something? Um, for, in terms of the Grand Fondo, it's a qualification event for the the UCI Grand Fondo World Series. So that means that the top 25% in the age group of qualifiers qualify for the World Championships. It's quite similar to tri- the way age group triathlon works. Wow. And we actually, last week, the Worlds were held in Perth. We had 800 riders from here la- that qualified last year. Um attended those championships in Perth and we had eight riders win gold medals so, 
in various time trial and age group events? I am going to be very slow tomorrow. <laughs> I hope that's not a problem. <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll look. There'll be plenty of. I'm sure you'll find a mate to ride with who's exactly the same speed as you again. Oh, good, <laughs> mate. I'm, I appreciate that you went uh, deep for this one. I know it's not easy, especially in a weekend like this. Um, for you to come here and talk to me about this, and even do, I really appreciate it, man. No, anytime. It's really. It's really, great to have you down here as well, mate. Supporting I'm, the event. I'm, I'm stoked that I can, uh, you know, bring the girls down here and, you know, I'm – any tips on getting my uh, fiancé and stepdaughter more interested in cycling will be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you could rent some bikes from Go Rats and get them to ride the family fun. Oh, they, mate, that's already happening. Yeah. That's and, already happening. And then we've got um, our off-cycle clinics running straight after that, which is our skills clinics. So oh, they're, really? They're running um, – today from midday till um, four o'clock in the village. Oh, yeah? And then tomorrow in the main street after the finish line from 10 till three. So she can take that, that bike and they yeah, can on the, on the hour, just rock up and they've got a, it's a really good program in terms of teaching oh, basic cycling skills. So, yeah, get them in there. Mate, that would be my dream to go for rides on the weekends with those two. Be the greatest thing ever. See, so yeah, my, my partner, I've taken her from being a non-cyclist to mountain biking to racing tarmac rally. And, and hunting now, so bow hunting for deer. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I'm not going to bow hunt, but <laughs> I love it. Hey, man, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. I'm just going to shoot your photo real quick, all right? Yep. That was Simon Gillett. You can find out more about the Amy Gillett Foundation on Instagram, Amy Gillett, two L's, two T's, FDN. A-M-Y-G-O-L-L-E-T-T-F-D-N. It's where you can find out more about the Amy Gillett Foundation. Thanks very very much again for all the support on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher. If you feel like supporting, I would be very, very grateful. If you can't afford support, totally fine. Please just support the show by letting someone know about it, and that might even mean you grab their phone, find the podcast app, and subscribe to it on their phone, show them how to listen to it. That could be enough, and it would do a wonderful thing for me this week. Thanks very much for all the podsy picks this week. Looking forward to finding out more about who listens to the show. It's a wonderful way to learn more and more about who's listening. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.